Hello again, and welcome to Uncommon Thinking. This is the seventh part of our journey through uh, Acts chapter 17. We're, we're with Paul right now as he is on Ares Hill, also called the Areopagus. And he is there to speak to a group of deep thinkers and philosophers and other Greeks about the gospel message of Christ. As I said last time, this one might be just a tad longer than normal uh, because there is a great deal to get through here. So um, I'll do my best to keep it as succinct as I possibly can. Now, uh, as we always do, we're going to start with a reading of the actual text using the New International Version, and then we'll get into some of the um, specifics. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him, and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. This gets us to the end of verse 28. Now, the last two phrases there, the last two sentences, are actually quotes. And they are quotes from non-biblical sources. And we'll get to that in just a second. One of the only places, actually, of two in the Bible where this occurs. All right, so what's happening here? Paul is speaking to a large group of people about his ideology, about the gospel of Christ. But instead of breaking down the theological arguments made here by Paul, my goal today is to illustrate how masterfully Paul was able to connect with his audience so that the message could be heard. See, so many believers today have just one way of witnessing, one way of telling, one way of sharing. It's like they have a sledgehammer called Jesus, and they just run around hitting people on the head with it. But Paul never did that. What he said in the synagogues to the Jews was different than what he said in the Agora. And what he was going to say on Ares Hill, which we read about in this section, was different as well. He knew to whom he was speaking, not just superficially, but he was clearly aware of what these people believed, where they came from, and what they were likely not to accept. He was aware of that he could push them too far in a certain direction if he didn't prepare the soil first. Too many Christians today, too many preachers, too many churches, we just don't have any idea to whom we're speaking. We think the one-size-fits-all approach will just work. And so we really need to learn from Paul here 
about what he does to set the stage for these people to consider Christ's message, though they really had no reason to do so. So the first thing he acknowledges is that the Athenians are very religious. That's what the verse says. So his first technique is to find a bit of common ground with those to whom he's speaking. He notes that his audience clearly considers the concept of gods as important. I mean, Greek mythology, you may have all sorts of uh, ideas and, and preconceptions about Greek mythology, but it's a very rich literature. The Greeks deeply cared about uh, expounding on the way in which their gods influenced the world around them. They weren't just afterthoughts. They mattered. They've spent a great deal of time and energy thoughtfully searching, searching these, these ideas and reasoning about religious concepts. Paul knows that he's going to be bringing a message of God, i.e. a religious argument. And so he prepares the listeners simply by reminding them about how valuable they believe information about the metaphysical world, about gods, are. So he comes to them basically in, in our modern language and says, look, we both agree that this, that this idea of God is important. We both agree that. If we didn't, you wouldn't have so many altars and temples and, and all of the things that you have here in Greece. Those wouldn't be there if you didn't think it was important to have them. So now we've got some common ground. Now we can talk. His next sentence emphasizes this point of similarity. As he points out an altar in the city that was built for an unknown God, there were actually more than one of those. He just points to one. The word here for unknown is agnosto. It's the root of our word agnostic. It's the only place in the entire Bible where this word is used. In an expanded sense, it means something that is unknowable due to a lack of personal experience which is, of course, the agnostic mindset we hear today. God may be real, but I've not had an unequivocal personal encounter with him, so I can't be certain. Therefore, I'm just not going to make a judgment at all. Of course, the odd thing about this particular altar in this Greek society is that they had altars to all sorts of other named gods, but probably no real personal experiences with them either, at least not unequivocal ones. Nevertheless, it was clear the metaphysical world was critical to Greek life, and so they just wanted to cover their bases. Maybe there was a God they missed. Maybe there's one out there they hadn't met yet. And so we're going to go ahead and put these, this altar out, and, and just in case uh, that God shows up, we'll say, hey, you know, we knew you were there. We knew it. We just hadn't met you yet. Here you go. Here's yours. Can always change the plaque, right? Now, truth be told, there's actually a little bit more to the story of the unknown God altar. We'll get to that in a bit. But for right now, let's leave that there. Now, at this point, let's be fair. Paul was going to insert God into that gap, right? And they all saw it coming. So they were probably thinking at this point, oh man, here we go again. Another somebody is going to stand up in front of us and tell us that, hey, that unknown God over there, I know him and let me tell you about it. So there was probably a little bit of skepticism at this point, curiosity, intrigue. It was probably a very divided audience. 
They just were kind of hanging on the edge of their seat, wondering where he was going to go. Then Paul uses a very clever phrasing. He says that God does not dwell in temples built by human hands. That word is also translated artificial or produced by human skill. You see, I think Paul is using a double entendre here. He's referring superficially to the multitude of temples in the land, one of which was literally at the foot of the hill where he was speaking, but also to a deeper meaning, that these temples were as artificial as the gods that they supposedly housed. Otherwise, Paul would have to be told to recall that God in the Old Testament did in fact dwell in a temple built by human hands, or at very least, he inhabited it from time to time. Thus, I strongly believe that Paul is really attacking the man-made nature of the gods themselves, not the buildings representing them. And in verse 25, we can see that that's probably accurate because he uses the phrase served here, that, the gods don't, that God doesn't need to be served. The word for served there is actually a word that is translated healed in every other place it is used in the Scripture. I think it's a mistake to translate it as served because it really identifies the difference between the Greek pantheon and the Hebrew God. See, if you don't know much about Greek mythology, let me tell you something. It's like watching a Real Housewives series. I mean, Hollywood couldn't write much more salacious stuff. Betrayal, murder, incest, conspiracy, it's all there. And who would want to worship a bunch of gods that can't even get their own house in order? Well, we would only do that if the people believed that their worship was actually benefiting the gods, that the gods would simply just self-destruct if it weren't for us worshiping them and telling them how important they are and how wonderful they are and how much we thank them. People in Greece actually believed that their worship of these gods was, in a sense, healing them. That's what kept these self-conscious, anxiety-written, weak deities from just ending it all. In other words, the people were important. They made the gods, not the other way around. This is a fascinating word use here by Paul, and it gets completely missed in modern translations. Now, in verse 26, some people interpret that very nationalistically, but I don't think that's what Paul was saying. Paul's comments here are in the context of time. He's saying that God transcends time. See, he knew that the Greeks would be what the Greeks were from the beginning, not because he had predestined it or because he had made it that way, but because he is not bound by our temporal dimension. He can mark the times of the Greeks and the Americans and the Russians because to him, all of time is always. has nothing to do with nationalistic boundaries, empires, or any sudden geopolitical things. It was Paul's way of showing the Greeks that God, unlike the gods that the Greeks served in the pantheon, are not defined by time. He is greater than time. He created time. And so he's not bound by it. Verse 27 finally uses the word seek for God, but the word is actually better translated to grope for and try to touch. You see, it's one thing to look for something, but it's another thing to reach your hand under that dirty couch, inside that garbage disposer, or that spot in the garage no one's touched for years to get that object that you want. 
God wants us to grope for him, not just calmly inquire. Paul is saying that people who claim that they don't see God are like the people who have lost a ring somewhere in the house, casually scan each room for a short time, and then throw up their hands and say, well, I guess it's not here. He's saying that the altar to the unknown God doesn't show evidence of searching. Instead, it shows evidence of surrender. Finally, he uses the Greeks' own voices to conclude this point. The first is from a Cretan philosopher named Epimenides. The Greeks had a story about him where there was a disruptive natural phenomenon in the land, and so they called Epimenides to help. He told them to release a bunch of sheep from the top of Ares Hill and then build an altar to an unknown god wherever each sheep stopped to lay down. That was where all the altars came from. And since the unpleasant natural phenomenon coincidentally ended when they did that, they believed the gods had done that through Epimenides' use of the sheep. That's where the first quote comes from. The second quote comes from the Stoic, Eratus, a poem that he wrote where he was arguing that Zeus was the driving force behind all things and was not a man-made creation, which of course was a viewpoint that was very Stoic. Paul is simply asking the Greeks to replace Zeus with God. He's basically telling them, look, you've seen this all along. Your Stoics have gotten this. They figured it out. They're just attributing it to the wrong deity. In summary, Paul finishes by saying, really, if you think about it, all of your gods are unknown. All you've really done is manufactured them so that you could finish the search before it was actually complete. You see, Paul has masterfully taken all of the thinking and philosophizing and theorizing that these Greeks have done for centuries, and he hasn't invalidated a single bit of it. What he's basically told them is, look, you guys did a lot of great thinking. You just were looking in the wrong place. I'm bringing you the real God. And a lot of the ideas that you have that you think that you kind of created on your own, here's where they actually came from. This is one of the best orations that Paul ever delivered because it was one of the toughest rooms he ever spoke to. When I see you next time, we will finish up his message in Acts 17 verses 29 to 31. Thanks for sticking with me for a little longer on this one. We'll see you next time. Take care.